You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. I'm looking through the book of Isaiah, we're at chapter 56, it's on page 742. Um, I was a little bit reluctant to use this, knowing that it was going to be a baptism, because uh, I was telling Craig this, it mentions eunuchs and dry trees, and it seemed a bit incongruous with celebrating the birth of a child. But you'll see as we go on how I think this is a wonderful word for us all today. So Isaiah 56 at the beginning, the first verse, let me just, words will come on the screen. I'm sorry, Louise, I don't think it's working on the. Maintain, this is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Well, earlier I welcomed people who are first time in the Bonnie city of Dundee. And for those of you who've moved to Dundee or those of you who are from Dundee thinking, why was I born here or why did I move here? Uh, I have got really, really good news for you. Because finally, in these endless surveys, one of them has come up with the right answer. There was a survey published this week that says that Dundee is the best city to live in in Britain for quality of life. And all the people said, Amen. <laughs> it's, uh, you say, come on, you, you, gotta, you can't be serious, especially people from other parts of Scotland. And if you're from Edinburgh, and we've got some visitors from Edinburgh, and I know we've got some people from Glasgow and so on, tough, we win. Um, because it, apparently how they measured it is average salaries, commute times, that's true, it got tough this week when the kids went back to school, took five minutes instead of three commute times, cost of living, pollution levels, and affordable housing, as well as other criteria. So you kind of, you look at that and you think, yeah, good, I made the right choice. So if you're a student here, first time here, you made the right choice. It's a great city for students. What about church, though? How would the criteria that people choose these things, or criteria for university, or criteria for a job, what about criteria for a church? Uh, Tabitha is being baptized as a member uh, of the covenant community of this church, and I'll explain more about that as we go along, but, you know, how would you choose a church? What would you look for in a church? Well, let me turn the question just a little bit around and say, we should look for what God looks for. What does God look for? And I think the passage that we're going to look at, Isaiah 56, 1 to 8, tells us what uh, this church should be like, and what every church that professes the name of Jesus Christ should be like. Often we're not, but we should be. Now, the context of this passage is that God's people, returning from exile to uh, Jerusalem, there were all kinds of problems, expectations, and difficulties. The leaders often were people who did nothing. The rich oppressed the poor, and the godly were dying out. That was the perception. There were especially tensions between those who returned to Israel who were Jews and the new immigrants. The Jews felt small and somewhat overwhelmed even in their own land. Neighboring groups viewed them with suspicion or even with hostility. It was very difficult to establish a secure and viable community. There's a man called Barry Webb who talks about how the community lived between the tension of the now and the not yet. And that's where we're at, of course, as Christians. We've been given so much, but there's so much more 
yet to come. We have to wait and we have to be patient. And whilst we're in this not yet period, God's community is to reflect certain things. So in this first verse, it talks about justice and righteousness. And that was really the source of Israel's problem. Earlier in Isaiah 5 verse 7, when Israel were being sent into exile, we're told this, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Israel was meant to be a covenant community of God's people, and yet there was violence, there was theft, there was oppression of the poor by the rich, there was so many things that were wrong in the culture and in the society. Justice. What is justice? Justice is not, doesn't come out of the barrel of a gun. It doesn't come, you don't get justice if you are the most powerful and wealthy. Justice is moral living in keeping with God's moral law. It's not just the enforcement of public standards of conduct, but it's also the kind of interpersonal relationships with, within the community. We treat people fairly. You know, like the cry of, of the child, that's not fair, that's not fair, that's not fair. Well, that cry is actually a, a fair cry. And we want to live in a community where there is justice. Now, I'll, I'll give you a personal example. I was really quite upset about Fraser's bike. Why? Because who goes around with bolt cutters to steal a kid's bike from outside a church? Even if you're selling it to get drugs or something, you get 50 quid on the black market. And who buys it? And what kind of society do we want to live in where that kind of thing happens? And I kind of look and think, you know, I, you get frustrated because the, the police are too busy. I mean, I read immediately the next day that a whistleblower had said that police in Scotland had, had been told, don't go after drug dealers. It's just too much hassle. And you haven't got, we haven't got manpower or money. And you think, that's, that's just not right. It's just not fair. It's to live in a society where, I mean, I know some of you will say, oh, I remember when I grew up, we never locked our doors. That's just because you'd forgotten your keys. But... Um, <laughs> No, I mean, some of us did live in that kind of, uh, of society. I remember the first time uh, I went to Sweden, I was amazed at how many doors were left unlocked. This, by the way, was supposed to be in godless Sweden. I thought it was just incredible. But um, often, I would go home from school. I, my parents never gave me keys. They just never locked the door. Well, you, you'd be daft to do that nowadays. And there's all different kinds of things that we have, all different kinds of security. We, when you live in an unjust society, it takes you twice as long to travel by plane because you have to go through all these security checks. But the other side of that, what's it like to live in a just society? Well, another incident last week was, um, it was our anniversary, so I went to the wee flower shop down the road to buy some flowers, and uh, I went in and I realized, oh no, my wallet, and I just had it two minutes before. I must have dropped it on the pavement, so I went out wasn't on the pavement. I walked up and down between the church and the flower shop, went in the, into the Sicilian, went into all the shops, asked, has anyone handed it in? I just thought, ah, oh, 
I phoned the police immediately, you know, stopped the card and that kind of stuff. And then I went back to the flower shop lady and, you know, we got the flowers. And she was lovely because I said to her, I'm really sorry, I won't be able to pay you until tomorrow anyway. And, you know, so I'll just get the flowers tomorrow. And she said, ah, don't be daft, just take them, you can pay me whenever. So I was really, really nice of her. And then the phone rang and it was the police. And they said, someone has handed in your wallet down in Bell Street. And I thought that was lovely. Actually, I thought the reaction of the flower shop lady was even lovelier because she said, oh, I want to cry. I'm so happy. <laughs> I thought, okay, I'm not that happy, but yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and uh, I felt we bonded at that point, and I'm buying flowers there from now on, never. Interflora, you're done. Um, and I went down to the police station, and what was lovely was the lady who handed it in hadn't asked for anything, but do you know this? She'd gone all the way up to my house and put a wee note through the door uh, saying I've handed it in, and I thought, that's the kind of society I want to live in. See, that's, you know, justice and things like that are when it's not just about the law, and I'll sue you if I don't get this. It's about the interpersonal relationships that we have with one another, that we care for one another, and we look after one another. And Israel had neglected that because Israel had neglected God. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm saying here. I am not saying that people who aren't Christians can't be honest and nice and kind. In fact, many are. But what I'm saying is this, is when a society rejects God, then that society also rejects the standards of God. And when you tell people that they're just a bunch of chemicals who are going from one meaningless life to oblivion, then don't be surprised if people go around with bolt cutters and steel bikes, because what does it matter? You see that you need a standard of righteousness. You need a standard of judgment. And that's what is being said here. And Israel is being offered a fresh start. They're being given the, the told they must seek righteousness, maintain justice, do what is right. It's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. We read part of that. You read the whole sermon. It's about how his disciples are to live as the light of the world and the city on a hill. Now, some people reading this and hearing this will immediately say, oh, hang on a minute. Are you telling us that in order to be right with God, in order to be good or whatever, that we, we just have to do lots of good things and that we get to heaven by doing lots of good things? No, because the Bible clearly evidences and shows and demonstrates, and we know within ourselves that all of us have sin, problems, difficulties within ourselves and all the good that we do does not make up for that. So I want to read you something from Romans 3. That should come up on the slide as well. Paul says this, Now apart from the law, that's the written down law in God's word, the righteousness of God has been known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I'd love to take the time to unpack all of that, but I'm going to leave that for another time. But I just want to simply say this, and it's very important to grasp this. The Bible's teaching is not be good, 
and God will like you. The Bible's teaching is actually you can't be good because there is a principle so deep within of sin that you will never in your life go through one day without doing, saying, or thinking something that's wrong. You need a new heart and a new beginning. You need to be justified. You need to be put right before God before you can truly seek for justice. Tolstoy's famous adage that everyone looks for the world to be changed and no one looks for themselves to be changed. We have to be changed. We are the ones who have to be made just. Calvin puts it this way, can men obtain righteousness and salvation by their own works? The reply is easy, he says, for the Lord does not offer salvation to us as if he had been anticipated by our merits, but he offers himself freely to us and only demands that we in our part draw near to him. Since therefore he willingly invites us, since he offers righteousness through free grace, we must make every effort not to be deprived of so great a benefit. I would have love, and I would love to meet the man who stole Fraser's bike. Not because I'd want to beat him up or torture him or just yell at him. Because I'd want to tell him there's a much better life than a life that makes you do stuff like that. There's a much better way. There's a way to be right with God and right with other people. And that's through Jesus Christ. So justice and righteousness are key in any community. And in this church, how we treat one another will be a key factor in the witness that we have to the wider world. Is it possible to have a community where there is justice and righteousness? May God grant it would be so. Then we go on to the next verse, verse 2. Blessed is the man who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrate it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Now, the Sabbath is important in this section. It's important in Isaiah. It's mentioned in verses 2, 4, and 6. I don't know what you think when you hear of the word Sabbath. Some of you will have grown up in a uh, culture and country where the idea of the Lord's Day as the, the Sabbath was very important. You know all the stories about locking up the swings on Sunday so you couldn't play in them. And um, Do you know that even in Dundee, until I think about the 1950s, they had uh, particular days during the year that were kept for communion times, Thursdays, they'd have a shop holiday. But I've, I met an old Dundonian lady, and, she's, and she, I mean, she wasn't from the West Highlands or anything like that, and she was telling me, I, I remember my mother you never used to hang out washing on a Sunday, you know, because that was just considered wrong. And there was that whole idea of um, the Sabbath. It was so common in Scotland that there were no Sabbath laws, because when the British Parliament made laws in the 19th century about the Lord's Day and the Sabbath, which they're still arguing about now, Queen Victoria and others said, well, you don't need to do it with the Scots, because they'll always keep the Sabbath. I just look at a Sunday today, that's obviously not true. What was this idea of Sabbath? Because it does smack for a lot of people this kind of legalism. And even there are many Christians, and many Christians who are here will go, no, no, I, I don't, I don't, I, I, every day for me is the Lord's day. Well, maybe. Exodus 31, 12 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Why was this so important? Why was this so connected with righteousness? 
It was for the Jews, the Saturday. It had to do with rest. And if you read the Sabbath commandment, it was not just for masters, but for servants as well, even for working animals and foreigners. It meant that you served the God of creation. It looked forward to the day of the new creation. It was a sign of the final rest, which all God's people will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. In that sense, it was also a sign of salvation. It was a sign of your whole life being submitted to God. In other words, Sunday or or the Sabbath Saturday wasn't just a convenient day for people to get together to worship God. It itself was a sign. Now, there are Christians who say it's done away with. And there are others, and I would be one of these others. I think the um, evidence for this is largely overwhelming, that the New Testament church changed the Sabbath to Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. But Jesus' principle that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, still remains. We still need it. When this church was built in 1836, uh, one of the things that was, is, is really interesting, the area around here was very poor. Lots of people died before they even reached primary school age. In fact, many of them wouldn't get Uh, to primary school at all, even if they did. And a lot, especially of the women and the younger children, were working in the mills that were growing up all around, spreading around all over the place. And I'll tell you, these mill workers, the one day they loved more than any else was the Sabbath, because nobody worked on the Sabbath. They may work from seven in the morning till seven at night or ten at night, but everyone got Sunday off. And it was a great blessing in such a community. Now, we live in a society where people say we don't need that anymore. And I'm, I, I, I wonder, I question. But I don't think it's just about um, having this day of rest and having this holy day, this holiday, which is where we get the term from. I think it, it is also to do with this covenantal sign, just like baptism is. It is part of our battle against evil. He keeps his hand from doing any evil, he says. We want to be a church where people keep their hands from doing evil, and that's really hard. I find it really hard. It's impossible without Christ. And that's why I as a Christian and you as Christians need the Lord's Day You need His Word, you need His people, and we constantly need to be reminded of our dependence upon Him and His wonderful salvation. It was encouraging last Sunday to have somebody come and say, I wasn't really looking forward to coming to church, but do you know this? I feel refreshed, I feel challenged, I feel renewed, and I feel really helped. Well, that's what the Lord's Day is for. It's not some kind of legalistic, you know, don't smile on a Sunday, don't do this, don't do that. It is an opportunity for us to be with God and with His people. This idea of the uh, Sabbath observance here keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it. Without the inner devotion to God, it just becomes hypocrisy. But I want to suggest this. I think those of you who say, well, I'm devoted to Jesus Christ, I don't need the Sabbath, I think you're missing something. It's like the Lord says, I'm giving you a great gift, and you say, ah, it's okay, Jesus, I love you, I don't need it. And Jesus says, well, wait a minute, 
I love you, and that's why I'm giving it to you. And I know that for some people, this just seems really, really strange and really, really weird. But like, take a day off. For me, I have to say, don't go near that computer. Don't write, don't respond, don't do things. Take a day off. For those of you who are students, you think, yeah, but Sunday's such a good day in the library. Good, make it more peaceful in the library. Come and worship. Worship with God's people. Go and have hospitality with God's people. Go and serve the poor. Have it as one day in the week that you and the Lord have together as practice for heaven. Watier says this, the acceptance of the Sabbath involves the reorganization of the whole of life in order to accommodate the principle of one day set apart. It is also the Lord's invitation to His covenant people to enter into His rest. There could be no plainer testimony to belonging to the Lord's separated people. Can you come to this party? Can you do this? Can you do this game? Can you work for it? Actually, Sunday is the Lord's day, and I'm going to go and worship God. That's a statement that stands out. Forgive me a personal reference in terms of uh, my own father. My father would not consider himself to be a great witness. He's a farm worker. He would not describe himself as particularly articulate or anything like that. And he, when he, he uh, wasn't able to work on the farm anymore, he worked as a boilerman in a distillery. And he never thought he had, he hated these sermons where people talk about you've got to be a witness because he never thought he witnessed to anybody. I went to preach in a church once and a man came up to me and he said to me, I wanted to meet you because he said, it's because of your dad I became a Christian. And I said, why? He says, I used to work in the Invergordon distillers uh, and he was a boilerman there. And he said, I was on the, often on the same shift. And he said, there was a couple of things about your dad that just amazed me. One was when you opened his locker, it was full of books because when you're a boilerman, you're just sitting around doing nothing really sweeping the grain into the vats. If you see how the whiskey was made, you wouldn't touch it. <laughs> and um, he said, you, you know, that's it, chasing away rats, that kind of stuff. And, but you'd have plenty of time to sit and read. And then, but my dad had all these books, you know, reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, things like that. Just, he just enjoyed that. But the thing that struck this guy the most was in those days, you got triple time for working on a Sunday because Sunday was a special day. And some people have to work on Sunday but you got triple time. And so these were really shifts that people wanted because you got a lot of money. And whenever my dad was given a Sunday shift, he gave it away. He says, does anyone want to take it? And of course, people wanted to take it. He said, well, why, why do you do that? He said, I want, I want to go to church. And to this guy, he thought, yeah, all these people go to church, but someone who's prepared to give up triple pay in order to go, there must be something. And that, that's what got him thinking I think in this whole thing, though, it's not just about Sunday. Calvin is pointing, uh, points out correctly, I think, that this passage is referring to the whole idea of worship. We are a church that worships God, not just on Sunday, but at other times as well. But the, the whole idea of us being here, gathered as God's covenant community, celebrating together, being involved in the baptism, is, is to acknowledge the greatness and glory of our God. Verses 3 to 6. We're a worshiping church. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure 
forever. Another mark of the new community, of God's new community, is openness. The Israelites here are told they must accept the foreigner and the eunuch. Now, the reason this was difficult and sensitive was because there were specific statements in the Mosaic law which they followed which ban both, at least in one sense. And it could have been taken and misapplied as it often was. So, for example, Deuteronomy 23.1 says this, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. They were actually physically excluded. Why was that law written? It wasn't written to be cruel to people. It was the very opposite. There was a practice in the cultures around of taking uh, people, taking men, and emasculating them deliberately. And it was used as a pagan practice. And God says, don't do that. You're not doing that. Don't do that. And he, he marked it as a sign that his people were not to do it. So they were physically excluded. Now, here what's happening is God is saying, yes, there are people who that has happened to them. Now you don't exclude them. They're within God's temples and its walls, verse 5. They're not able to have children. And in Israel, again, as again in, in our culture, it's, a, it's, a, it's still a great thing where people say, oh, we hear that so-and-so is having a child, and children are a blessing. But there are people who are not able to have children, and, and the, especially the eunuchs, they were told, you can't belong, you can't belong, you can't belong. And now they're told, you do belong. And God says something even better. He says, you are getting something better than children. Sometimes I think in the church, we make it sound, children, of course, are a tremendous blessing, but we make it sound that as if you don't have children, then you're losing something. Well, you are in one way, but if you are a Christian, what God is saying to you is, but you get something so much more. I really don't want anyone in this congregation who doesn't have children or who has lost children or who is unable to have children to say, oh, somehow there's something inadequate and, and desperate about me. No, there's not. This applies to you as much as anything else. What was this this name. It wasn't just a memorial on a wall. It wasn't just in, in memory of. It's about receiving a name that can, be never, that can never be cut off. Because children were so important in that culture because it was your family name and it went down to your child and your grandchild and your great-grandchild and so on. And if you didn't have, then your family name would die out. And Jesus says, wait a minute. I'm giving you a new name. And your name will never die out. So it was an inclusive. It's saying, you come in as well. And it's saying about the foreigner as well. Literally, the foreigner here is the son of strangeness or of a fallen, foreign land. The foreigners were to be treated according to their attitude, not their birth. In, in Mark 11, this, Jesus quotes these, these verses. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he says, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Because they divided up and divided up and divided up and they excluded foreigners. And Isaiah says, no, no. There are no foreigners 
in God's church. People are not excluded. And that's true of this church here. No physical disability, no racial characteristics, no social divisions exclude anyone from the kingdom of God. People in our society will talk about equality and diversity. You will see it in the church. And if you don't see it in the church, it's not a Christian church, whatever doctrine they say they have. But, there is a but, it's also a willing people. Um, Let's have a look at this quote from Mr. Calvin. Um, I just thought this was so lovely. He's talking about who is included, that they may love the name of Jehovah. We must observe the end of the calling, which is here stated, for he says that they shall be God's ministers on condition that they love his name. Thus, hypocrites are here excluded, for the calling joins two things together, that we serve God and that our service be with a ready and cheerful disposition of mind. There can be no worship of God if we do not willingly and readily yield obedience. What is said about alms giving, that God loves a cheerful giver, ought to be applied to every part of life that we render to God willing service. And that's what is being said here. It's not saying, as sometimes you will hear preached, oh, everyone's included, it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter who you follow, you're all included. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you're all included because you're all invited to come to Jesus. But if you stay away from Jesus, then no, you don't belong to his covenant community. But you are all invited, whatever you have done, wherever you're from, you are invited to come and to know. And it really is about coming to Christ because you can come here and you can worship you can sing the songs, you can say amen in the prayers, you, you can participate in all of it, but you can do so reluctantly and uh, in, in a way that actually removes you from God. I'm quite glad we don't live in a culture where everyone's expected to go to church. We might have full churches, but I'm not sure that we'd have biblical churches. I'm quite glad that more and more in our culture, it's becoming the point that if you're going to church, you almost have to keep it quiet a wee bit, go under the radar, go incognito. I do remember speaking to a man once who said, is there any way I can come to your church in disguise? I said, well, yeah, go, fine, go for it, whatever you want. Um, and he was actually asking, do you have a room that I could come in, and, but nobody could see that I was there? And I said, oh, honestly, people won't notice you. And he came in and the f- people went up to him and started shaking. I thought, oh no, leave him alone, leave him alone. <laughs> He's freaking out at that. Um, but, but I tell you this, in a culture where going to church is viewed as weird or even insane or wrong, one thing you do know is that people who come, most anyway, come because they want to, not because they are compelled to. And that's what God wants. He wants us to worship him willingly. And then verse 7 says this, These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. We are back again to being a worshiping people, a joyful people. This is about the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, but it's about so much more than that. It's about God's body, the church, being brought to completion with people from every language, tribe, and nation. Here is the beauty of holiness, says E.J. Young. 
men from all nations, brought into his household by saving grace, lift up the sacrifice of prayer into his holy name, which they love, and in his name serve him in his house. See, that's why people from all nations are welcome here. It's great. I mean, as I say, we've, over the past couple of years, we've had a lot of Malaysians, and that's just wonderful. We love Malaysians and love Malaysian food, hint. And, uh, but also Africans and Asians and, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I did have someone say to me, I'm English. Will I be welcome? I said, no, nah, not really. No. I said, of course you're going to be welcome. Irish. Irish. We welcome the Irish, so of course we're going to welcome the English. You know, uh, uh, the, the whole thing goes like that. But that's what, it, that's what the church is. It's a house of prayer for all nations. We are called into the church in order that we may call on God, says Calvin, for in vain do they boast to neglect prayer and true calling upon God and yet hold a place in the church. Let us never forget in this exercise of faith. This is the highest and most excellent sacrifices which God demands. The holiness of the temple consists in prayer being there offered continually. We have to be a praying people. And then just lastly, let me mention this, verse 8. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Jesus says, John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. This passage the whole passage of Isaiah 56 is particularly poignant if you go and read Acts chapter 8. I won't read it just now, but Acts 8 verses 26 to 40, which is the story of Philip meeting an Ethiopian eunuch, a foreigner. And guess where he was reading from? Isaiah. Do you understand it, says Philip? How can I understand it unless someone explains it? And by the way, that's another reason if you're not a Christian, you should come to church because it's my job to explain the Bible and to share that with you. And you can ask questions and discuss and lots and lots of different things, but that's what we're here for, to help you understand, help us all understand. And there's this Ethiopian eunuch saying, how, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to him? And Philip explains to him, and can you imagine the conversation? He's explaining about Isaiah 53, but he's also surely going to explain about Isaiah 56. The eunuchs are welcome. The foreigners are welcome. There's a great harvest. That great harvest of what Jesus has done is being reaped in Asia and Africa today. But I think of that great harvest also in Scotland. And I think in the church we should stop being so miserable and defeatist and we should realize that there's a great harvest in Dundee. There's a great harvest in Charleston. There's a great harvest in Ayleth and Blagowry and Montrose and St. Andrews and Glasgow and Edinburgh and everywhere else. He, our God is the God who gathers. He gathers the dispersed of Israel. He doesn't get His people, lock them up in a wee fort and say, right, that's it. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. He calls us so that we may be part of that gathering to reach others. And that's why if you're a visitor here, you're very welcome. If you're a Christian here, be challenged by what God says and be encouraged by what God says. Let's maintain justice. Let's be a welcoming community. Let's worship God. Let's keep the Lord's day. Let's be a people of prayer. And let's be those who welcome everybody, everybody 
to hear about Jesus and to come and know Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for what you grant to us. Thank you for each person here. And may it be that if we're the ones who think, oh, I'm a foreigner because I don't understand all of this. I'm a foreigner to grace. I'm a foreigner to Christ. Lord, bring them in. And if it be that we are those who've become narrow and cold and bitter, and even as Christians, we have grown into despair, help us to see beyond that and see that your purpose is to gather people from all over. Thank you for Jesus, and thank you for your day and the opportunity for us to meet and share together in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.